Welcome to Armed Love, the Antifada side project, where we talk about the revolutionary counterculture of the 1960s. Joining us today is historian Aaron J. Leonard, who, along with Connor A. Gallagher, wrote Heavy Radicals, the book about the formation of the Maoist tendency in the United States and the length the FBI went to stop it. He also wrote Folk Singers and the Bureau, a book about the formation of leftist folk in the United States and the length the FBI went to stop it. And now he's released Whole World in an Uproar, a book about the radical music of the 60s in the United States, including rock and soul and jazz and more, and the length the FBI went to stop parts of it and eventually promote other parts of it. So we'll, we'll work our way there. Uh, thanks for joining us, Aaron. How are you feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling good. And yourself? I'm feeling great. Going to a hardcore show after this, so um, that's that's not the most political scene, but sometimes sometimes those guys make an interesting statement. We'll see. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, my last, the closest I ever got was uh, I was a Clash fan, so I, I actually got to see them guys, you know, several times. That's you know, great in their heyday. Yeah, but there there was no <clears throat> there was no mosh pit, so. But there was pogoing, right? Did you pogo? No, I didn't pogo. You know, I I just got I saw them at Bonds in 1981. They were uh, doing their Sandinista record, and uh, the show was just uh, you know in my memory it was transcendent. I, yeah, I'm not a dancer, but I think I was dancing. I think a lot of people were just totally animated. Another thing that would happen in those early punk shows would everybody everybody would like spit at the band. It was called gobbing. Did you see, <laughs> yeah, did you see any gobbing? No, the this was different. The Clash were kind of uh, moving out of just that small circle of uh, uh, punk sensibility. The most controversial thing is uh, the first night I wasn't at the show. They had a, I'm going to say Grandmaster Flash, uh, but they had one of the uh, very old school rap groups, and, and some people in the audience were booing. Wow, yeah, it was pretty pretty miserable stuff. But you was know, it was like mid '80s. Say again? Mid-80s? Uh, 1981. Okay, so, so, yeah, that's very early, yeah. Yeah, but the Clash, uh, in those days, they were pushing the envelope, so, you know, and they didn't, you know, they didn't apologize. I just remembered listening, a WBLS was the R&B station in New York, and, uh, you know, you could hear Bob Marley, and then you could hear uh, the dance version of Magnificent Seven, the Clash. It was mm. just a crazy moment it kind of flickered and went out but it was very cool well there was a have you seen the the, the pistols the sex pistols show that was on hulu uh no i did i, I watched a couple documentaries i didn't see the uh the the uh, fictionalized right. version or the uh, whatever they call it well i thought it was great it's based on um steve jones autobiography and and there's a great scene where the 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 Sex Pistols are, you know, they're assembled as like a boy band sort of, and they're trying to figure out what their sound is actually going to be. And they can't do it until, uh, until the drummer lays down a reggae beat and says like, okay, this is, ha this is where we start. And, um, you know, the, the Sex Pistols were not a band that like were very conscious about their use of, of black culture like that, but, uh, the Clash were and integrating a lot of reggae and ska and elements. So it makes sense that they would also, uh, be interested in hip hop too, and 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 share the stage with uh, that emerging genre. So that's nice to hear. Yeah, well, Joe Strummer, I understand he was just he just had a voracious curiosity musically. Uh, you know, you you can hear it uh, if you uh, 
get the album uh, based on his his film, uh, The Future is Unwritten. The, you know, the scope of the music is just kind of where his mind was at. We, we, you know, we need more artists like that. Right. Curiosity is a good thing. Um, okay, but we're talking too much about the 70s and 80s. We got to dial well, it we're, back. We're, we're kind of at the front of it, and maybe we can back up a yeah. little bit. Well, let's, go, let's go all the way back to the 50s, actually. That's where I want to start talking about your book, because uh, I really love the intro talking about when rock and roll breaks in uh, the early 50s. And there's actually these riots around the United States where people are based on Rock Around the Clock and, and some other movies that feature rock and roll. Kids are going nuts. I, I assume like mostly white middle class youth are starting to have what might today be recognized as like a flash mob, causing trouble seemingly just for the sake of it. What do you think was behind that? Like, was it just the sound of rock was, uh, you know, activating parts of the American psyche that had been untouched? Yeah, well, as you asked the question, I'm looking at the book and, uh, you know, so the film Rock Around the Clock gets released. Bill Haley and the comments are in it. Um, and there's these descriptions in the press in Minneapolis. Youngsters marched out and snake danced down a leading thoroughfare breaking store windows. Windows. Similarly, police intervention also was necessary to quiet disorderly juveniles in a theater in La Crosse, Wisconsin. In Newport, Rhode Island, the film was banned at an enlisted men's club. You know, this is the Cold War, right? This is the Cold War, the early days of the Cold War, and it's still the Red Scare. It's in, you know, the U.S. has come out of World War II victorious. It's the biggest, most powerful empire in the world. But, you know, it has to contend with the Soviet Union, which emerged from World War II, very powerful. The Soviets made, made much bigger sacrifices in winning World War II than the U.S. did. And, you know, they, they claimed a certain position as a result of that. But the United States, it's a very repressive society. It, it, it's actually kind of paradoxical. paradoxical. Um, on the one hand, they need to you know, clamp down and maintain a certain social order and they have to kind of go after domestic leftists, particularly the Communist Party USA. At the same time, they want to project to the world that they are the bastion of freedom and democracy. So, you know, you have things like Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, the beginning of the disassembling of uh, Jim Crow and the legacy of you know, 100 years since Reconstruction was overthrown and, and, you know, the legacy of 400 years is slavery. So, you know, there's, there's this, you know, mix of things going on. But, you know, if you're a youth circa 1955, 56, 57, you know, people are going to church every Sunday. You know, sex is totally taboo. It's, it's done, you know, in the dark, in secret. It's not discussed. You don't swear. I mean, that that's just not happened. You dress a certain way, your hair is a certain way. So there's all this, uh, you know, enforced conformity. And here comes this film, which essentially just kind of flips a switch on how you can move and how you can act. And uh, and it's a foretaste of what's going to come in another another decade. I mean, that that's the context. And it's funny. I mean, there's rock around the clock just on its face is... Uh, you know, it's not a politically charged song, you know, you know, and you can contrast it. I mean, uh, 
what was it like 73 74 george lucas does american graffiti and you know rock and roll around the clock has figured very prominently in that movie but it's a it's a it's a throwback it's conservative it's saying you know let's let's take a breath from all this tumult that we've just come out of so i mean there's nothing implicit in the song uh that, that says go break windows it's, it's actually the historical context and in the mid 50s it's it's kind of a volatile uh, incubating volatility well what do you think the band thought when their that song became so explosive i mean it sounds like kind of a a, a punk moment so the punk bands obviously loved the chaos they were causing but what, what do you think Bill Haley and the Comets thought? Geez, you know, I, I can't answer that. I imagine they were astonished. You know, I mean, you can look at these guys, how they're dressed. I mean, they still got, you know, the uh, the kind of style of the big band. They're wearing suits. Their hairs are all, their hair is well trimmed, you know, and all that. But they're, they're just moving a little crazier and their music is a little crazier. You know, big band music was, uh, was not exactly staid and, and wholly conservative itself, but... Yeah, I, I imagine they were astonished, but I, I'm sure sure Haley talks about it somewhere. Unfortunately, I'm not familiar. Um, yeah, one other one other comment I'll make about this before we move on is the song "Louie Louie," which was, I guess, something like a traditional song, like a lot of bands played it during that period. Uh, also caused riots and was like banned all over the country and stuff. And bringing things back to punk, Black Flag in you know the the early phase of hardcore uh, had a cover of "Louie Louie" that they would break out as a signal to their fans to destroy the venue. If they played a venue and they felt they were being disrespected or the bouncers were acting aggressively or the cops were coming, they would break out Louie Louie and that was a signal to, to fuck shit up. Yeah, that's funny. Well, you know, it, it kind of goes to what I was saying. You know, Louie Louie, I think, comes out early-ish, early-ish in the 60s and, you know, people choose to hear what they want to hear. Uh, you know, they're hearing dirty lyrics and stuff, you know, because a lot of the music is early rock and roll it's all innuendo and in inference you know good golly miss molly sure likes the ball um you know we know what he's talking about but but some of the older people don't uh louis louis people choose to hear what they want to hear you know by the end of the decade people are openly saying fuck actually you know i don't know if you ever heard nielsen schmielsen is this comes out in the 70s he has an album and the opening song is your you're breaking my heart. You're tearing it apart. So fuck you. I mean, this, this would be unheard of, you know, a decade earlier. Mm. But, you know, after that transformation, you know, which my book, you know, walks across that terrain, you know, you could actually say that. I mean, whether it's a good song or not is another matter, but it's fascinating. So our audience is broadly familiar with uh, COINTELPRO and MKUltra and intelligence operations like this, um, had some interest in the counterculture in the 60s and were involved in certain ways. But before we talk uh, about it, its interest in uh, the sort of music the book talks about, what was the FBI interested in general coming into the 60s? Like, what was their main purpose and target and what were their goals? You know, a major power and especially a superpower you know, is not going to exist without a secret police. I mean, you know, after World War II, the CIA gets created. I, I believe the uh, NSA gets created. You know, there's all this apparatus that's erected for, you know, a world power that's operating sub rosa. The FBI, I mean, their mandate, you know, in the 20s, yeah, they, uh, 
you know, they, they were instrumental in the first Red Scare, but their real power, you know, came in the World War II period, you know, 1939. Franklin Roosevelt mandated a custodial detention list, you know, people, Nazis or communists, to be rounded up in the event of a national emergency. Roosevelt was anticipating getting into the European war, and he tasked the FBI with, you know, creating this list. And, you know, that list goes all the way into 1971, uh, you know, because they are the domestic, you know, secret police ostensibly. You know, there's certain things, you know, governments can do openly, and then there's certain things they have to do quietly and secretly. But, you know, America, the United States uh, hails itself as the quintessential democracy. So it, it doesn't, you know, admit to having a secret police. And, you know, we're kind of bombarded with a thousand ways about everything is open and above board. But, you know, this the 60s era sparked a crisis where, you know, the reality of that, you know, was exposed. I mean, the crisis in particular was, uh, the U.S.'s defeat in Vietnam. So, you know, COINTELPRO, MKUltra, you know, all these various secret things were part of waging the Cold War, which was in a very funny moment. I mean, my book attempts to um, place this cultural upheaval in the midst of, you know, a larger geopolitical shift and in which China, the Soviet Union, and the United States are kind of realigning. You know, you know, the Soviets and the Chinese had had an uneasy coalition, and the U.S. was very freaked out about that. So from like 1949 until Khrushchev denounced Stalin, you know, the U.S. thought they were con- confronting a huge block, and then that block started to shatter in the 60s when uh, the Soviets and the Chinese, you know, had this major rift. And it just created a uh, a very unique situation that you know got resolved when Nixon went to China in '72. But you know the FBI and the CIA were tasked with you know fighting communism and keeping the U.S. number one in the world, and everything flowed from that. Uh, I, I think there's a bit of a mystification about the FBI and Hoover, and there's an attempt to. You know, kind of turn Hoover into the uh, the devil, you know, the singular devil working off the reservation rather than somebody who was part and parcel of this whole uh, systemic operation. I remember uh, one of the last budget meetings that Hoover sat for in front of Congress, you know, one of these senators, I think he's a Democrat, you know, basically gave a little valentine to him saying, you know, sir, I think we all sleep better at night knowing you're in charge. And I, you know, I think part of it was hype, but I also think it was real. You know, Hoover was doing things that, you know, needed to be done for the empire, as it were. Yeah, so you do something kind of interesting in the, in the earlier part of the book where you're talking about like rock and roll like and jazz and the beats and this like thing that emerged in the 50s with the new youth culture, you know, teenagers appearing as this new demographic from this new American order based in the suburbs. But then you also, like you just did, you just, you met, you throw in the Sino-Soviet split as like somehow um, like related to this. And so with my question about like, what was the FBI trying to do? I'm wondering if they saw some connection with this cultural explosion in the United States where suddenly 
these teenagers are like smashing windows and saying the word fuck. And then also this like a uh, kind of shift in the resistance to the post-war order. You know, it's very complicated. You know, when I, I wanted to write this book, you know, before I wrote folk singers in the bureau, but I, when I started to ask for FBI files, I was getting, Oh, it doesn't exist or we don't have anything. And a few were like, you know, with Sam Cooke, Oh, it's been destroyed or, Richie Havens. Uh, so I had to put the project aside. Uh, and I wrote Folk Singers in the Bureau, which talked about essentially the old Communist Party when it was still pretty vital circa, you know, 1940 to 1950. Uh, but then I returned to this this book, Whole World in an Uproar. Uh, the full title is uh, Whole World in an Uproar, Music, Rebellion and Repression, 1955 to 1972. Uh, so when I return to it, you know, I, I've got a few more files, you know, I got a file on Dave Van Ronk. I got, uh, a file on Miriam Makiba and a fairly extensive file, something from Susie Rotolo, who is Bob Dylan's first girlfriend. I mean, literally she's, uh, still in her teens, uh, which references him. But so is he, so, to be fair. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, there is some FBI stuff. There's there's a Phil Oaks file goes into the 60s. But then there's a lot of people where there isn't FBI stuff. Uh, but what there is, is there's systemic uh, repression. You know, the the conclusion of the book, I have uh, have this quote from Spiro Agnew, which I thought really kind of got at what was going on. So he says uh, this is probably around 1970 or so. I do not suggest for one moment that there is a conspiracy among some songwriters, entertainers, and movie producers to subvert the unsuspecting listener. In my opinion, there isn't any. But the cumulative impact of some of their work advances the wrong cause. I mean, I thought that was very well said. I mean, Spiro Agnew was uh, the point person in Nixon's cultural war against the counterculture and the left and the black liberation movement. Um, but I think he articulates that, you know, what was happening in rock and roll as far back as the 50s um, or, you know, the folk music revival, and then even more blatantly with groups like The Doors, you know, singing about five to one, one and five, and break on through to the other side, uh, is, it was oppositional. You know, it's kind of a kind of a Marxist conception of history that there's contestation that, that drives things, you know, not that it's a, an arc toward progress. Some sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but there's contestation. And if you're challenging the dominant culture, you're actually objectively landing on an oppositional side and there's pushback. So, the, yeah, there's the FBI targeting people who are in hierarchical democratic centralist organizations, but they're also targeting Jefferson Airplane and and the doors because what they're doing is undermining the order of the United States. Uh, they're, they're telling youth not to respect the country, not to promote patriotism, not to support the war, not to support the racial polarization. So as a result, certain, you know, it's akin to... Uh, an organism when it, when it has a, 
a bacteria or a virus. It it, it uh, commands all its resources to drive it out. I'm not, I'm not saying this culture is akin to a disease, but I mean, the metaphor is a, a systemic opposition. So that was the book. It wasn't just the FBI, although the, there's a lot more of the FBI stuff than I thought. But it's the things like the drug war. It's the things like, you know, canceling the permits, you know, so there can't be outdoor music. You know, that these things are part of the terrain. And it's, I think, part of the story that's largely been overlooked. Um, yeah, and, and just staying in the 50s for just one more question. Uh, we had Ian Sfananias on the show last week, who was in uh, some punk bands in the 80s and 90s and still plays music today. And he, he writes a lot about like the sort of semiotic of rock and roll. And his take on the 50s is really interesting. He says that these bands came out of sort of the image of the youth delinquent gang like these rock and roll bands sort of modeled themselves on guys hanging out on the street corner in leather jackets who probably were involved in some kind of petty crime because they have like souped up cars but mostly what they're doing is just not working and not conforming and so that was like sort of the public face of this massive shift in u.s culture where young people were now not interested in like immediately getting married and getting a job and reproducing the Eisenhower role of their parents, but going some other way that involved a rejection of their parents' values and work. And we could see in the 60s, like a much stronger rejection than had ever happened before. And in your book, you talk a lot about when bands become political, they start getting monitored or suppressed by the FBI. But when did the FBI start getting interested in rock or jazz or any sort of genre specifically? Or did they ever care about what the art was? They just were interested in what the artists were saying. You know, it varied. I mean, you know, you've got some of these jazz folks who had, you know, relationships with the CP, even though, you know, they had ended. So that would put them, you know, on the FBI's radar. Um, a lot of these folks actually weren't on the FBI. I mean, Alan Freed, he's a, you know, the guy who popularized the term rock and roll. I mean, the FBI, uh, yeah, they have a small file on him, but the main people going after him is, uh, is uh, kind of the larger media scape and Congress, you know, and I mean, there's this whole uh, uh, payola scandal, which I, I never understood. It's like, it's this big scandal because, you know, apparently record companies were paying DJs to play a certain kind of music, you know. I yeah, mean, when, just, I, when I heard about that, I was like, wait, they don't do that? I, I mean, yeah. it's just like all the radio stations are owned by one company that also has relations with the record companies. Like, I just, it's kind of just obvious that that would be happening. But at, yeah, at the time, yeah. it was well, people were mad. Was money was going to the DJs and not the record companies. Ah, got it. Yep. That's why it was a scandal. But they... Uh, Oh, they just hounded Alan Freed. I mean, uh, Dick Clark came out of this all squeaky clean. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he navigated that, but you know, we we you know right up to the very end, we had uh, Dick Dick Clark's Rock New Year's. But Alan Freed drank himself to death in a in a, you know in the desert in California in Palm Springs. You know, as a as a young man, because they. The IRS was after him. The government was after him. And, you know, Alan Freed was somebody who refused to, you know, kowtow to the morality. I mean, he insisted on playing the original music by black artists. You know, he wouldn't play, you know, Pat Boone and things like this. Um, you know, the, the thing with the 50s, which was a discovery to me, is 
just how much was going on. I mean, it, it was not the explosion of the 60s, but, you know, looking back, it was clear something was incubating. It was rock and roll, but it was also, you know, elements of jazz. <clears throat> you know, we were, you know, Sonny Rollins and um, a Thelonious Monk were all doing stuff in support of, you know, the black freedom movement, some cutting edge stuff. Uh, you know, the Beats were, you know, they had a smaller audience, but, you know, Allen Ginsberg does this poem, Howl, which is just, you know, totally edgy stuff, you know, talking about alienation, you know, in the post-war years. And then then the thing that really just kind of gets almost erased from history is the folk revival. You know, there's this big move toward um, um, Calypso, you know, with Harry Belafonte. I mean, that's actually where... The Kingston Trio got the name, you know, Kingston being in Jamaica. But that quickly evolves into this folk revival, which is uh, kind of drawing on the folk of, you know, Seeger and Guthrie. But it, it goes in a different direction. And, and then you get people like Odetta and Joan Baez. And they're all, you know, and Carolyn Hester. And they're all incubating in the, uh, in the late 50s. So all these influences are happening. And, and they, they profoundly impact you know, what is to come. I mean, it's not that things are totally out of control yet, but given the way everything develops, they do come, they, they do become far more unmanageable. Yeah, and um, I think like the, the first spark, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, but in 19, the spring of 1961, in the West Village, there was a, a ban on playing songs because they're the folk scene would have these Sunday sings in Washington Square Park. When this band came down, there was a call organized by the, the Folklore Center for everyone to come and sing in the park on Sunday in defiance of this band. And, you know, people were singing patriotic songs and traditional folk songs. But the police came to try to shut it down, and there ended up being some scuffles, you know, nothing too violent. There's a really nice video of it you can find on YouTube. But it was portrayed in the press as like a beatnik riot of like 5,000 beatniks descending on the West Village. And to me, like reading a lot about that time, that seemed to be uh, that and the, the like the exploitation movie wave that happened around that time, a signal to the youth culture in general that there was this alternative way of life and people were doing it in the West Village and you too can pick up an acoustic guitar and a, uh, a flannel shirt and some jeans and either go to the village or play folk music on the quad on campus or get involved in the moment in the civil rights movement. So there was this cultural and political explosion right when the 60s starts. So I imagine if you're the FBI watching this, you think like, well, we're going to have to reorganize our, our tactics because, you know, previously they were doing um, the House of Un-American, Un-American Activities Committee, you know, pulling in communist-affiliated or suspected communist-affiliated artists and musicians and questioning them in this sort of, like, show trial. But what was the FBI thinking, like, going into the early 60s, and, and how were they going to repress this uh, this sort of new moment? Yeah, well, there, there's a lot there in what you ask. I mean, the the beatnik riot, I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, it's a brief thing. I mean, the, the, the police move in, and they will, and they arrest people. And they club some heads and, you know, compared to, you know, the actions around People's Park that take place in Berkeley, you know, six or seven years later, it, it, it seems almost parochial, um, but it's a foretaste. But even calling it a beatnik riot is, uh, 
you know, this columnist Herb Cain writes in the San Francisco Chronicle. He he coins the term. He's talking about some some club and saying all the beatniks are hanging out there. And he thinks he's really clever. I mean, beatniks is a conflation of Sputnik um, and uh, beats. You know, the beats are people like Allen Ginsberg and uh, uh, geez, I'm having a mental flip. Kerouac. Uh, yeah, on the road, Jack Kerouac, you know, folks like that. Um, and, you know, they're they're alienated. They're coming out of World War II and they're like, uh, you know, Kerouac is basically, look, we're a beat generation. We, we don't even have a name. Um, so Kane takes that and he conflates it with Sputnik. So he turns it into a kind of acute, you know, anti-communist trope. He conflates this kind of cultural movement, <clears throat> you know, with uh, – with the, the Soviets, you know, ascension and stuff. And then, you know, he runs runs that phrase three or four times. Uh, so, you know, people have this little uprising in, in or this little pushback in Washington Square Park and suddenly it's a beatnik riot. I mean, actually, the way you described it was very interesting. I mean, it's it's actually a little punk, isn't it? I mean, you just bring your own guitar and you make music. It's very DIY uh, and it's not fitting into the whole consumerist sensibility that's being promoted. You know, the United States, the land of abundance. You know, Richard Nixon says, after 20 years, you probably want to buy a bigger house. You know, this is what he tells uh, Khrushchev. But it's a, it's a herald of things to come. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm kind of getting at your, your question wholly, but it's like, you know, a lot more comes after this. Actually, the the... Yeah, it's like the FBI, right? So the FBI is not so much involved in things like uh, the Washington Square riot. You know, you've got this Parks Commissioner, Newbold Morris, and he has this this thing. I am not opposed to the wonderful symphony, concerts, bands, quartets, or chamber music. What I am against is these fellows that come from miles away to display the most terrible costumes, haircuts, etc., and who play bongo drums and other weird instruments attracting, attracting a weird public. I mean, it goes back to this, this systemic pushback by the system. But the FBI is watching, you know, Dave Van Ronk. You know, Van Ronk is, uh, uh, you know, not super famous, uh, he, but he's a bedrock of this folk revival. You know, I mean, he starts out as a jazz artist, but then he turns to folk music when, um, you know, he loses his seaman's paper, right? He was uh, in the Merchant Marine and he gets robbed. I mean, if you've seen the movie Inside Lewin Davis, there's a scene where, you know, the character, you know, his sister or something throws away his seaman's paper. But the actual story is, you know, uh, Van Rock, I think he's drunk and he gets picked up by and he's hitchhiking and he gets robbed and he loses his seaman's paper and he debates about trying to get him replaced. And he decides, well, you know, because of my communist affiliations, I'm probably not going to get him back anyway. So let me become a folk musician. And then, so uh, got- and then like the, the guy at the, the union hall he's talking to is like, Oh, are you a shockmanite? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I, you know, it's funny. It's a funny movie. It really the movie really pisses on folk music. I mean, you know, the, I mean, I love the Coen's brothers work. I mean, the stuff is just great to watch. 
but it seems like they got a bee in their bonnet about the old left. You know, uh, if you if you watch Hail Caesar, the, you know they they do a caricature there too. But yeah, um, Marcuse is in that movie as like a Soviet agent, which is <laughs> kind of strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I watched this interview with the Coens and they asked them about the Lewin Davis movie, and they say, "Well, were you were you trying to?" Uh, you know, satirize folk music. Or, and they say, oh, you can't satirize it. It does it itself, which, you know, they don't get it. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of really bad folk music, just like in any genre. But I don't think they got quite appreciated fully the, uh, you know, what folk music did. Um, anyway, back to Dave Van Rock. He doesn't have his Siemens papers. He decides not to try to get them. I mean, he's kind of half jokingly says this in his memoir, you know, because of my past background, I probably wouldn't get it anyways. I got a document from uh, exchange between Hoover and Naval Intelligence where they're basically saying, look, we have pictures of him coming out of the Socialist Workers Party's headquarters and we can give you this and, you know, and you can use that as the justification to deny him, you know, getting his Siemens papers reissued. They knew he was a Seaman because it you know, they picked up his albums and they'd seen a reference to it on the back. So Van Rock was not going to get him, you know, and even though he was kind of half joking, he was correct. Um, you know, the, the FBI was not going to allow people like that to make a living, you know, if, you know, a lucrative living, you know, if 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 they had any say so about the thing. Um, so that's where, you know, Van Rock talks about the great folk scare. And it's uh, it's actually something he takes from the anarchist Utah Phillips. You know, Utah Phillips talks about the great folk scare, and he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek, you know, but there's an actuality about it. I mean, th this is a thing in the 60s. Um, it's kind of the received wisdom, well, that the anti-communism on the part of the FBI was just kind of totally um, out there, you know, that, that it, they were dealing with something that wasn't even real. Uh, but in fact, it actually was kind of real. There was a Soviet Union. There was a communist party in the U.S., you know, there were nuclear weapons on both sides. The stakes were very high. This was not a joke. Uh, the new left did not embrace the old left. Uh, there was a disconnect there. But, you know, without getting on to the complexity right this second, um, it, it was, you know, an actual battle of sorts between communism and, and this, this Western democracy. And the FBI was playing a role and wherever they saw a hint of that kind of stuff, you know, they were going to be proactive, especially if, like Van Ronk, you were, you know, a member of one of these democratic centralist organizations, in his case, a Trotskyist. But if, you know, Pete Seeger was not in the Communist Party at that point, but he was still, he had never renounced communism, you know, and he, uh, you know, my sense was he was always a strong supporter, you know, well into his later years, you know, he, he never fully distance himself from that or not even distance. I mean, I don't think he broke with a certain orientation ideologically, but. Uh, so going forward just a little bit uh, into the kind of height of the sixties counterculture, 66, 67, 68 um, Dylan and the Beatles have broken through to the mainstream. Um, there's now these, the counterculture is now mass culture, and it's a convergence of the new left, of SDS, of rock and roll, of folk, of uh, the emerging, more militant end of the, the black liberation struggle. Um, 
the the hippies, you know, in the West Coast, there's like Grateful Dead and the the Digger Anarchists working together. So there's this huge thing happening, and for a moment, it's relatively united. Um, and you know, an unknown number of thousands of mostly uh, white middle class kids are leaving home and going to these kind of hip urban centers. And a big part of that was the underground press. Um, including things like ramparts uh, in the Bay Area and uh, the East Village other and um, uh, stuff like that in, in New York. And the major labels were advertising uh, and keeping the underground press um, funded and, and, and alive. And this all ends in, uh, I think, 68, 69. And um, it sounds like there was more or less an open conspiracy between the record companies and the state to pull this funding. What's your take on on that story or that controversy? Well, actually, what it makes me think about is, uh, you know, I came of age at the very tail end. You know, I just caught maybe the, the very last year or two of that whole period. <clears throat> you know, I got out of high school in 75, so I was, you know, you know in high school, uh, 71 to 74, so I do have some sense of what that was like, and I think uh, people who are born after probably 65, 66, they don't quite know what it actually was, and you know, you you kind of get it from books and popular media. Even the term hippies, I mean, I would never have called myself a hippie in 71, 72. We, we called ourselves freaks, which was a very Uh, adversarial stand, you know, freaks smoked pot, you know, didn't like the cops, didn't like the government, didn't like the war, you know, were for equality for women and and, uh, the freedom of black people and things like it. Hippies was a throwback to uh, something from Dragnet. And the the counterculture itself was, you know, it was not embraced. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the record companies were advertising you know, in these underground, you know, record companies, I mean, capital just wants to regenerate itself. It wants to expand and it'll go anywhere it can. And, you know, after Monterey Pop, they sign all these bands and people like Bill Graham start promoting rock concerts. There's the commodification of this whole thing. But there's also, you know, uh, the actual radical edge of this stuff. I mean, you know, if you had long, listen to Bob Seger uh, <clears throat> song about uh, turn the page, you know, you, you grow into a cafe with long hair and you get the same jokes about, is it a woman or a man? It, you know, to be in that was to be a marginal person. And also if you got caught with marijuana, it was very serious. You know, it could mean very, you know, it could mean hard jail time and you had millions of youth doing this illegal thing. So, uh, it's there's more going on than just this halcyonic throwback of peace, love Woodstock. I mean, even Woodstock itself, I talk about there's a political consensus about the people there who are chanting along with uh, Country Joe and the fish cheer. And, and they know the lyrics to uh, feel like I'm fixing to die, which is this satire of of going to die during the Vietnam War. You know, Jimi Hendrix deconstructing the Star Spangled Banner, Joan Baez singing about her husband in jail. I mean, the film is pointedly made to put forward some of the politics, but there's a common assumption among people 
a lot of the youth in this generation, and I think a lot of people today don't understand that. You know, and they also don't understand, I mean, there's there's this kind of ridicule of OK Boomer, which I think kind of misses that uh, some among the boomers, you know, actually broke down the walls and laid the basis for, you know, the the, the relative cultural freedom that, that people have today. And I'm, and I'm not, not saying that the you know, the, the boomers ought to be heralded. There were a lot of right-wing boomers as well, but it, it's more complex. Uh, you know, history is more complex. I mean, you know, I've come to appreciate people like Seeger and Alan Lomax and and Paul Robeson, you know, and, and what they did, you know, and Woody Guthrie, what they did, which laid the basis for people like Dylan and and the Beatles to actually come on the scene. I mean, it's it's contradictory and there's there's nuance to it. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure I've actually addressed your question directly, but yeah, there was a commodification that's going on, and and it got really ugly, you know, into the 70s. It all kind of descends into arena rock, but there was also still sharp polarization, you know, especially, you know, the youth came to be kind of marginalized in, in the way that other, you know, sections of the population had been marginalized, maybe not to you know, clearly not to the same degree, you know, and there was a way out. But but for a moment, there was like two sides. Well, what I'm asking about is um, not only the commodification, but the moment when the state and the record companies begin to reel it in. It sounds like the, the word kind of just came down to the record companies to stop advertising in the revolutionary alternative press. Yeah, well, you know, I'm actually not that I'm not familiar with that. I mean, it, it certainly sounds... Uh, logical and something in their interest. I, but I think the bigger thing that ended all this was, you know, Nixon got elected and his plan was, I'm going to stop send American troops to fight the Vietnam War. I'm going to start bombing. And by the early 70s, he was pulling troops out. So, you know, I mean, you're 18 years old in 1969. You're confronting a life or death issue. You know, you go to Vietnam, you go to college you know, or you go to Canada, you know, and if you, you know, if you choose Vietnam, it's like, you know, you, you've rolled the dice on, on everything in front of you. You know, Nixon basically reverses that. And by 72, the war is essentially over. Uh, and th- and that's where things start to wane. And and then he, he does that based on, you know, this master stroke of diplomacy, you know, China, is concerned about going to war with the Soviet Union. They're having you know, border clashes, and the Soviet is, Soviets are a much bigger nuclear power. So the Chinese, you know, don't want to be confronting the Soviets alone. They have rapprochement. You know, Nixon comes to China. the The global forces are realigned. You know, and it allows Nixon to get out of Vietnam without having to confront China and the Soviet Union, and and a pro socialist Vietnam, you know, it, it just changes things. So there's a, a complexity be, beyond just the domestic market forces, you know, something bigger is driving this stuff is kind of uh, my sense of the thing. And, and then, you know, with the Vietnam War open, you enter a whole new era where, you know, suddenly drugs are kind of, a lot of people are doing drugs not to you know, experiment and expand their consciousness, but but just to get wasted. And music is no longer a communal event. It's a pay to 
pay to play thing. You know, you pay to get in and you have a good time and you leave or you get busted at the concert and stuff. And, and everything is, you know, has a dollar sign approach to it, attached to it. But, you know, the the, the stance towards the, the state was not purely to uh, not only to repress um, the underground art, but at times to also support it. And a really interesting story in the book is that the CIA essentially blackmailed the jazz rock group Blood, Sweat and Tears to go on a tour of the Eastern Bloc, which is a story I hadn't heard before. But apparently it was well known in the 60s that this had happened and the band really fell out of favor for doing it. So what led up to that and why did the CIA want to organize a Blood, Sweat and Tears tour? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a, it's important. Actually, it's related to what I was just saying about uh, people considering themselves freaks and common assumptions. Uh, it's like if you were, you know, associated with the State Department, you know, venture to Eastern Europe where you came back and denounced communism, you were like, you know, you were part of the establishment. You know, I mean, things were polarized in such a way that cool people would not listen to blood, sweat and tears. Meanwhile, blood, sweat and tears are, you know, they're going up into the Grammy Awards and they get best album over Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And uh, Jesus, what else was it? Johnny Cash at San Quentin. I mean, a number of like pretty remarkable records. And Blood, Sweat, and Tears walks away with it. And the, you know who's voting on this stuff? I mean, you know, basically established, you know, essentially more conservative forces are 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 giving the votes and giving the seal of approval to these things. So yeah, the State Department says we want you guys to go to Eastern Europe, you know, and do some shows and, you know, maybe come back and tell us what you think. And they come back and they say, oh, yeah, that communism sucks, you know, which it probably did. You know, I mean, I'm sure what they saw was, you know, I mean, these were not vibrant societies in Romania and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and stuff. I mean, they, you know, they were fraught in their own ways. But to, to come back in that situation basically as a spokesman for the U.S., uh, government, the State Department and the CIA, and it just puts you on the margins. But then then you discover they're blackmailed, right? It's like David Clayton Thomas. He's a great singer. He's the lead singer of the band. And, you know, the State Department's like, well, you know, David, you know, you're here illegally. You got busted in Canada. We could either send you back to Canada or you could go do this tour in Romania. And, you know, they did it. You know, I mean, what what would have been much better is if they went public with it, you know, and you know, and there would have been a huge base of support for them, but they, they chose the uh, path of uh, least resistance. I mean, look, you know, I, uh, it's not personal against them. They were put in a very tough spot, you know, and they shouldn't have been put there. And, you know, the bad people here are, are, are the people who forced them to do it. But, you know, you, you get confronted with decisions and, uh, and it has implications. And it, it did kind of torpedo their countercultural credibility. You know, at that point, you know, just like James Brown, you know, hugging Nixon. I mean, it was like, well, what are you doing, man? You know, Nixon mm -hmm. sucks, right? But, on, you know, on the flip side of it, did the the Soviets see rock and roll as a threat or like a cultural degeneration or something like that? You know, I'm not fully schooled on it, but they, they were pretty conservative. And, you know, and I, I think they would look at what happened, what we talked about at the first part of this uh, you know, the response to rock around the clock and think, eh, we don't want any of that. Better to play the classical music or maybe some folk songs and stuff. 
I mean, both the Soviets and Chinese, I mean, you know, I mean, the Chinese, they do these model operas, right? Red Detachment of Women, which this stuff is great stuff artistically. But man, I don't want to live in the world where, where that's all you got going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think uh, either of those societies basically had the cultural things sorted out. And the United States is more like the Wild West, you know. But, you know, here in the U.S., it's like when this good stuff comes up, they, you know, they piss on it and they try to suppress it. And that's a lot of what happens. Highway 61, I was looking for the reviews of Highway 61 and like they don't exist except for, you know, one, you know, in the San Francisco Chronicle and you know, Ralph Gleason actually gets it. But nobody else is even speaking to it. You know, Dylan is he doesn't get any Grammys until, you know. Nashville skyline comes along you know it's just absurd in retrospect but that's the way it the way it goes it's kind of why I don't watch the Grammys I gave up on them you know many decades ago it's they're always 20 or 30 years behind the times but today they're actually more like totally you know pegged to how many units you're you're shipping but that's another question entirely right um okay so let me let me ask you like a left field question because uh, we we haven't talked a lot about heavy radicals, which has a new edition out on uh, zero books, and that's more of the you know the story of the formation of Maoism and and how the FBI was monitoring it. Um, were there any Maoist punk bands or pro Chinese bands in the sixties or early seventies? Uh, I think the answer. I meant rock bands, not punk bands. Probably no. You know, I mean, the the best people were kind of setting their own course. Uh, you know, country Joe McDonald, he did <laughs> 7172. He does this album, Real Live Country Joe. I don't know who he was hooked up with at that time or who was he, he was influencing, but this record is, you know, if you haven't heard it, uh, go ahead and get it. I mean, he has this. Uh, Come on and make revolution. Join the people. Army. If we stand together, we'll all be free someday. We'll be free someday. Free someday. Come on, brothers and sisters, it's time to join the army. You know, join the people's army. <laughs> you know, it's 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 actually a nice little join the people's army kind of folk song sing along. Um, and then, then he has this uh, easy one. Uh, we love Chairman Mao. We love Chairman Mao deep down in our hearts, deep down, deep down, deep down in our hearts. I had this uh, when I was in high school. Uh, we formed this group, the Stoned Rabbits People's Party, uh, in our little town in central New York. And we were proto Maoists, kind of modeled after John Sinclair's White Panther Party, you know, taking Huey's. You know, admonition, you know, white people should organize white people, black people should organize black people. Anyway, so Stone Rabbit's People's Party, we would we would march through town singing, you know, we love Madam Bin deep down in our hearts. We love Che Guevara. So yeah, that's probably the closest to a, a, a Maoist uh, sing along that, that I can recount. But, you know, Jefferson Airplane, I mean, they. They take this anarchist track and they do "We Can Be Together." Right, from we the are lawless, hideous, dangerous, dirty, violent, and young. You know everything you say. We are, we are. So that, you know that's pretty right out there and stuff. Yeah, and but that song doesn't really rock. It's unfortunate. Yeah, but 
I really like the way Yorma's guitar brings you into it. I hear like a bugle charge, okay. you know, and then it ends with volunteers, which is, you know, much, much better done live. But I think Jefferson Airplane, they don't get a lot of credit for, you know, they were like one of the biggest bands of that era. And and I don't think it, it's actually appropriately uh, acknowledged in hindsight. Um, I mean, they're there because they were so huge, but uh, I mean, they do this album, Crown of Creation, which it's the band in the middle of a mushroom cloud. You know, I mean, it's kind of an indictment of U.S. society. It's, it's pretty intense stuff. Yeah, so uh, we'll ask a couple more questions, um, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to move just to the beginning of the 70s. Um, on a previous episode of our show, we talked about the movie Joe. Are you familiar with that movie? Uh, I'm familiar. I never watched it, but I did see Young Frankenstein in a, <laughs> uh, Peter Boyle's uh, Peter Boyle's great role. There. Right. Okay. So yeah, this movie Joe Peter Boyle plays this uh, working class uh, Joe, and he links up with a uh, like a richer conservative guy, and they decide to go kill some hippies, like go on a hippie killing spree under the guise of like rescuing this guy's uh, daughter who's dropped out and joined the counterculture. Um, and the, the point of the movie is don't do that. Like, you know, don't go and commit senseless acts of violence against people who are different than you. But the advertising for the movie, which came out in 1970, just right around the same time as the hard hat riot and, uh, after Kent state was playing on this deep desire in the American public to move on from the anti-war movement and counterculture and hippies. And it really reflects how pissed off people had become at the left um, in a time when that movement was arguably already sort of falling apart from within. So do you think that moment of reaction had something to do with the FBI's efforts or do you think it just happened naturally and the FBI just sort of let it happen? Well, you know, I, things developed the way they did. Right. So in my book, you know, gets into how, you, you know, the My Lai massacre, I mean, this this unit, this Americal division goes into a village and kills every man, every elderly man, woman and child. Um, and they just slaughter them and leave them in the ditches and it, it gets exposed. And there's a top 10 hit basically saying, you know, poor William Callie, who was the lieutenant who was in charge of the platoon at the point, poor William Callie was just doing his job. Um, you know, it's this apology for the, this hideous massacre. Um, and it's part of a whole, you know, again, the, the system, as it were, defending itself. Merle Haggard famously comes out with uh, O'Keefe from Muskogee and then Fight Inside of Me. You know, later years, you know, Haggard tries to walk it back a little bit, but then he doesn't really walk it back. I mean, look, Merle Haggard's brilliant, uh, but it took me many years to be able to listen to him after those two songs, which were you know, frontal assaults on the counterculture and this whole movement against the war and against, you know, a lot of the ugliness in the United States. Uh, the hard hat riot, you know, Nixon sends troops into Cambodia. You know, people are killed at Kent State. Students are killed at Kent State. Campuses all over the country are going, you know, up in flames, you know, with, with dissent and, and riots. Um, and in lower Manhattan, the carpenter, the uh, labor, a major uh, labor union uh, alliance of 
amalgamation of labor unions to organize a counter demonstration where they beat the shit out of the anti-war protesters. You know, Peter Brennan is the big union leader. He's late, later named as uh, as uh, Nixon's Secretary of Labor. I mean, you know, you see elements of civil war essentially. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it's like you know, the the political apparatus is not just going to sit idly by and let these things continue. And I think had the war, you know, continued in a certain way, one could have expected an escalation. I don't think there was anything, you know, you know, inherent that was just reacting. I think it was more like, you know, the, you know, more systemic forces uh, reacting. Um, I mean, there's a whole thing to be said about the working class, too, which, uh, I mean, union construction workers are actually a pretty privileged uh, section of the working class because what happens as you go into the 70s is you actually get a lot of these anti-war youths and Vietnam veterans going into industry and, and transforming to a degree. I don't want to overstate it, you know, what's going on in industry, but this is happening at a time when industry is starting to uh, transform. You know, the U.S. is beginning its... Uh, you know, decades-long uh, deindustrialization, which has profound effects, you know, down to today. But uh, there, there's a counter counter revolution, essentially, Stolopin reaction. You know, whatever you want to do, it. It's like you know, things develop through through struggle, and that's what you see, circa seventy-one, seventy-two. Um, but what I'm really getting at with that question is. A lot of the discourse around the 60s today amongst the left is wondering how much of it was steered in one direction or another by the state, by COINTELPRO or MKUltra or what have you, up to the point where some narratives just have it that the drug culture and hippie culture and basically created as a way to destroy the old left. Yeah. And obviously there were, you know, you talk like a, a great book to read to talk to understand the specifics of that is Heavy Radicals. Um, so there were attempts to play up one tendency against another, although I'm not convinced by Heavy Radicals that it was very successful compared to like normal leftist infighting. But so my, my question is basically how successful was the FBI in the 60s at controlling the counterculture and the revolutionary milieus? Well, if you took the FBI out of it, all those things would have gone further. But I think they still would have hit the objective limits. You know, the U.S. Yeah. was waging a war at Southeast Asia. The Soviets, the Chinese and the U.S. were all, you know, arrayed in conflict and attempting to navigate how they were going to, uh, you, know, you know, align geopolitically. You know, huge, larger forces were in effect. The FBI is basically working under that mandate. I, I think um, I, as I've gone through this uh, of studying the FBI and its role, and I mean, I've said this before, the, you know, the, the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party, was definitely impacted in the Revolutionary Union before it. They were impacted by the efforts of the FBI. I mean, they had somebody on their four-person standing committee uh, Don Wright, who all the evidence shows he was an FBI informant. How could that not impact things? But at the same time, you know, uh, the leadership of that group put him there. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, as they say, the ultimate responsibility is on the groups themselves. You know, and yes, you know, these the secret police, as it were, 
have an impact, sometimes a very profound impact. Uh, but, you know, they're, you know, the FBI, the CIA are operating under uh, a large, you know, they're not, it's not a deep state operating separate from a larger socio-political apparatus. They operate underneath it. You know, sometimes they have disproportionate agency, but they operate underneath larger forces. And I think that's what happened uh, in the 60s and 70s. They they created a lot of problems and and perhaps, you know, in many instances, kept things going from further than they they could have gone. I, I know students, you know, there's a book to be written about students for a democratic society and how the FBI used the Progressive Labor Party to torpedo that organization. There's a book to be written about what the FBI did with Progressive Labor Party, which was a, the nominally Maoist group up until 68. Uh, but still, SDS was what it was. I mean, it was it was a huge umbrella organization with a lot of people pushing in a lot of different ways. And then the situation around them is changing. You know, you know, the Nixon has a strategy. You know, LBJ has a strategy. You know, the SDS just isn't running the board, you know, by themselves. So I, I could kind of trip out and go in a number of different directions. But I think what I'm saying is. You know, group. You know, the FBI definitely played a role here, uh, but then, then I think at the end of the day, it's the groups and individuals who uh, probably primarily, you know, determine how things go. But they do that underneath these larger geopolitical forces or larger social economic forces. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. Let me ask you one last question. And, uh, you know, you made this comment about OK Boomer before that pretty much gets to the heart of what I'm trying to do with this armed love subseries, which is say, okay, we, we're, we know the failures of the sixties. We know we are living in the world that the, that the, the progress of the sixties and the failures of it created. And, uh, those people are now in charge. Um, but I want to have people my age and younger understand the similarities between that time and ours. And reading the end of your book, the part about the early seventies, I was thinking, Maybe there's a, a pretty clear parallel to the moment we're in now, which is characterized by a lot of reaction and pessimism and like sort of performative apathy. That seems to be all the stronger because of the success of the last decade of struggle, which included Occupy, Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd Uprising. And so now we see this really, you know, incredible reaction to that. That includes the Republican Party just openly trying to re-entrench patriarchy and white supremacy, banning books and limiting college courses and making it illegal to be trans in public and, and stuff like that, uh, Very ex being very clear about what they're trying to do with quite a bit of popular support, not for that legislation specifically, but just for the idea that the left has gone too far and like wokeness and political correctness has run amok. And I'm wondering if that we're getting a little insight into how fed up uh, especially the, the middle class today, but also, you know, a lot of the working class as well was at the 70s. And if, if it if you think maybe there's a resemblance to, to the uh, kind of anti-woke moment today. Uh, you know, that's that's a whole universe of something to. To try to tackle, um, what can I say? You know, as you were saying it, Lou Reed, he did this record, what, in the early 90s called New York, and he had this song truckload of faith you know uh, and it 
sprung to mind as you were talking. I, I think the situation in front of us yeah, is going to require a truckload of faith, not in any religious sense, but in the sense of, uh, um, you know, faith in that we can solve some problems, that we can kind of reconceive things, that we, that we can get a vision, you know, beyond the one we have now. Uh, I'm reading this book, uh, China on China's grand strategy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have the reference for you immediately at hand, but it talks about how the Chinese uh, have a whole view of kind of overtaking the U.S. by 2049. You know, the an- anniversary of 1949. But it talks about how the Chinese view the U.S. and how they view deindustrialization and the, the arise of uh, populism and the uh, and the penchant for identity politics. Uh, and it was just very interesting to me because I, I guess I look out at the scene today in the U.S. and it, it just seems like um, some fundamental things need to be looked at. You know, what is the state of the U.S. in the world? What What's giving rise to all this uh, conflict between, you know, this, this really ugly far-right stuff and then a left uh, elements of the left, which seem to be, you know, very um, uh, locked into a certain view of things, you know, and, and it needs a much more expansive. You know, we need to, if I can use the term we, we need to uh, kind of bring more people in than push people out. We need to, you know, Maoists talk about uh, identifying the difference between contradictions with ourselves and contradictions with the enemy, you know, and be able to, you know, kind of navigate, you know, when somebody thinks something fucked up, do you just kind of, you know, get rid of them or do you attempt to, you know, actually transform their thinking? I don't think there's enough taking people by the hand and working things through. Uh, I'm being awfully, awfully vague, but I think like uh, things are headed toward, certain resolutions in the coming decade. Uh, I think the the United States, uh, its role in the world is kind of uh, potentially, you know, up for grabs. I think the uh, quality of life or the standard of living or the expectation of what it is, you know, to live in this country, that's going to undergo fundamental transformation. I, I think the political apparatus, I mean, the media just keeps people locked into uh, you know, who's running for president, who's running for Congress, as if, you know, those issues are going to fundamentally resolve things. You know, too often the matter of uh, who owns stuff, you know, and who makes stuff is, is kind of disregarded. So I'm not going to keep kind of just going on freely associating, <laughs> but I think there is a need for you know, a different vision of what kind of society there needs to be. I know people are doing that. Uh, I think there needs to be a different vision of what it means to work together to get that. I, th- I think there's, you know, I'm a historian, and I guess the thing I'm trying to do is understand how it actually worked out in the past. And if you have a fairly deep understanding of that, it might suggest, you know, how to do things going forward, including how to do things a little differently. And just on this uh this matter of legacy. Like I said, when I was growing up, I thought uh, that people who were in the Communist Party were just so full of shit. They were revisionists, they were conservative, and, and to heck with them. You know, and I, I've kind of since come to appreciate that while a lot of that was true, 
you know, they were for real, you know, and they sacrificed greatly and they went to prison. Some of them died uh, and they attempted to to get to something. And, they, you know, and, and some of that needs to be embraced. And similarly, you know, the period I write about in this book are the long 60s. You know, people made big mistakes. They did ridiculous things. You know, the, the chauvinism, the sexism, the drug abuse, you know, it was all you know, not cool, but then there there was a whole other element that was uh, that was uh, insurrectionary. You know, it was akin to have living have lived through a revolution, and that ought to be embraced. And that, <clears throat> you know, what we confront in the future is it's a kind of an open book, but there are some things from the past that can hopefully you know guide us on this path without just getting knocked dead and you know left in the ditch. You know. Yeah, of course. I think the you know the left has has always had a lot of insufficiencies and uh, counterproductive tendencies, and you know, obviously, if it if it didn't, we would be living in communism right now. Uh, my question is about this like moment of reaction. I think what I'm getting at is not like is there something wrong with the left? Of course there is, and no one really understands and hates wokeness more than the left, right? My question is more, is there this reaction to the last decade of struggle, a similar uh, impulse as the early 70s, where it wasn't actually any anything specific about what they were reacting to against that drove it. It was more just wanting to go back to some sort of stable American conception of life without the tumult of the 60s. And I feel like that is what a lot of people want today, and I don't blame them for that. You know, wanting to have a the chaos and uncertainty and danger of revolution is not something everyone is going to want, especially when they do have some comfort and stability in their life. But the way it gets expressed in like anti-communism or you know white or uh, patriarchal revanchism, I think, is particularly concerning in this moment. Depend on a wise man. You can't find them because they're not there. You can't depend on cruelty. Crudity of thought and sound. You can't depend on the worst always happening. You need a busload of faith to get by. Busload of faith to get by. Busload of faith to get by. Was load of feet to goodbye. Was load of feet to goodbye.